We are in the book of Acts. So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. And we've been looking at this idea. We've looked at the idea of the restaurant. We've talked about how many of us love going to restaurants. We've talked about how um, when you go to a restaurant, uh, someone else cooks all the food in the back of the kitchen, and they bring it out to you, and you eat, and then you critique it, whether or not you like it or not. Then you decide, do I want to go there again or not? And that's just how many of us treat church. Uh, many of us treat church like a restaurant. We, we look at it like, okay, the, the pastor's job is to kind of cook me the spiritual food. Then they serve me Sunday morning. If I like it, I come back. If I don't, then I go somewhere else. And so um, you realize how often we walk out of a church service and we just say things like, that was good. That was a good talk. That was a good message. But if you don't really get to what why we're here, that's all null and void. And so our goal for this series is to show you how to feed yourself spiritually um, in the same way that you can't go to a restaurant and learn how to cook. Um, you, you can go there every day of your life and not learn a thing about cooking. Uh, many of you guys come to church and never learn a thing about like feeding yourself spiritually. So we're trying to show you guys how to study the, the Bible as we're taking you through the book of Acts. And so... Um, we're in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 4 today, looking at verses 1 through uh, 12. And where we've been the last few weeks, I'll describe last week uh, before we move on, move on to this week. Um, last week we talked about a story where Peter and John, two disciples of Jesus, were um, in the temple courts. They walked past a lame, crippled guy who can't walk since birth. And they healed this guy. And then uh, the, the, the crowd finds out about it in the town, and they start rushing towards these guys, asking them what just happened. And then Peter turns on the crowd, and he says, you guys killed Jesus. He accused them of killing Jesus. They were guilty of that. And then, um, so after, so at this point, Peter is preaching the gospel to the crowd that rushes onto him. And this is where we're brought uh, to today in Acts chapter 4, where it's at the same scene where the healing has already taken place. And this crowd has rushed on to these guys, and Peter and John are now preaching the gospel to this crowd. And here's what, happen, here's what happens next. Uh, I want you guys to read at your tables first. Just read verses uh, 1 through 12. And somebody each table, just go ahead and read from your Bible at the, at the tables. And we'll go ahead and read as a group together. So don't jump to your questions just yet. But go ahead and read verses 1 through 12. What I want to do is uh, read it together as a group. We're doing repetition because repetition is how you guys learn stuff. So uh, you read it one time, you have no idea what it says. We're going to read it twice at least. So uh, let's read it together as a group. Verse 1, Acts chapter 4, it says, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, 
then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So while Peter and John preach, the priests and the temple police and the Sadducees show up in the middle of this scene. Go ahead and do questions uh, one through four at your tables. The first question is, who are the Sadducees? And I want to encourage you guys, you can use your iPhones, Google it, go as Wikipedia it. Uh, if you know how to spell Sadducees, that is. But look it up in your Bibles and discuss those questions at your tables. Or John, just ask John, Jennings. Go ahead and discuss. Okay, the plan for this morning is going to be, uh, we're going to go ahead and, and teach all the way through this text, and then we're going to do some more discussion at the very end. So um, let's try to answer some of these questions first of all. The Sadducees um, were people that were part of their religious courts. Uh, if you've been around church for a while and you've studied the Bible at all, you've heard words like Pharisee, Sadducee, and scribes, words like that. And you might ask the question, what do these guys actually do? Well, the Sadducees were in charge of maintaining the temple. Um, many of them were priests, so they would actually offer sacrifices at the temple many times. Um, they were also known more for what they didn't believe as opposed to what they believe. So this is kind of like the religious leaders of Israel that uh, did not believe certain things that other people in Israel did believe. I'll give you an example. Um, they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe there would be a bodily resurrection um, after we die at some point. They didn't believe that. They also did not believe in the first... They only, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they did not hold to the rest of the prophetic books of the Old Testament like the Pharisees did. And so they held to this a small section of Scripture as truth. And they also uh, catered to the wealthy class. And so they were kind of enmeshed with people that had money, which is never a good thing when it comes to religion, is it? And then, then lastly, they were, um, they were more loyal to government than they were to God. So they were trying to keep the peace in their nation, so they were trying to appease the Roman government. And they are more, more loyal to the Roman government than they were even to God. And so any time religion kind of comes mixed in with, with government or with, with wealth and status and not believing the Bible, that's always bad. It never leads to good things. And so uh, these guys are upset. At Peter and John, because Peter and John are preaching Jesus, and they're also preaching the resurrection of Jesus. And they don't believe in the resurrection, so they're upset about these guys preaching this, uh, this thing about Jesus. Uh, secondly, they're upset also because their jobs are on the line. Think about this. If Jesus is the final priest, and if he is the final sacrifice, their jobs are on the line. So they hear about Jesus, and if he's the, the final sacrifice, like these guys are saying, then they don't have anything to do. Their, their, their job is on the line. And so they're upset because of that. So Peter and John get arrested. Uh, you can imagine they get thrown in jail for one evening, 
And uh, you can imagine the conversations in jail. Um, I don't know if this actually happens in real life or not, but you know, people going around saying, hey, what are you in for? Drunk camel driving or, like, what are you in for? And these guys say, okay, healing a crippled guy. And they're like, okay, seriously? Okay, sure. Okay, okay really? Healing a crippled guy. So these guys get thrown in jail for healing a crippled guy and preaching the name of Christ and the resurrection. Um, in verse 4 it says, the church has grown to about 5,000 people. So let's, let's track this. Acts chapter 1, the church is 120 people. Acts chapter 2 and 3, it's about 3,000 people. Now it's at 5,000 people. And some people think this is just talking about just the men, not the women. So this could be as many as 10,000 people if you include women, if you interpret this, this passage that way. So, so Peter and John go to jail, but 2,000 people go to Jesus. Peter and John get thrown in jail, 2,000 people come to, come to know Christ as their Savior on this day. This shows us, I think, a profound truth that they can arrest Peter and John, but the Holy Spirit cannot be arrested. They, they can bind Peter and John, but the Holy Spirit cannot be bound. In fact, we can even say it this way. That when, when these two guys get bound in prison, the Holy Spirit is unleashed to do his work, and he saves 2,000 people. And so we see this even in our lives, that there's this, there's this flip side to suffering, isn't there? That whenever someone suffers for the gospel, many times it leads to a greater impact than had they not suffered. This is true today even in uh, other parts of the world. Um, right now the church is growing like crazy in places where there is the greatest persecution. And there is no explanation for that except that the Holy Spirit is doing His work. And we can also say that when people decide to commit to Christ in the midst of suffering, other people are empowered to believe. And here's why. Because when the unbelievers are surround, when they surround this scene of persecution, and they see people cling to Christ in the midst of persecution, they start to think, hey, maybe there's some truth to this. Maybe this is real. Maybe this is the truth. If this person is willing to go to prison or to die for their faith, maybe there's some truth to what they're saying. And so we see this happen in the book of Acts where persecution actually leads to greater church growth, which is the exact opposite of what you would expect to happen, right? You would expect suffering and persecution to lead to the church shrinking, the church getting smaller. That's the exact opposite of what actually happens just throughout history. So Peter and John, they spend the night in jail, and in the morning they have to appear before this court. Now, this is like the Jewish Supreme Court. Okay, track with this. Um, imagine yourself going to jail, then having to go and appear before our nation's Supreme Court. Right? Anyone here ever been to the Supreme Court, like just outside the, in Washington, D.C.? Anyone ever seen that before? Okay. Um, I grew up close to that city, so... Uh, we used to march um, in January every year about abortion, about pro-life and so on. And there would be like 100,000 people marching past this, this massive Supreme Court, big columns, you know, really stately looking, you know. Imagine walking up those steps as where you're at right now in life, having to testify before those Supreme Court judges. Very intimidating, especially if you spent the night in jail the night before, Right? So these guys have to testify in front of what's, what's basically the Jewish Supreme Court. 
There are 71 people here total in this court. Elders, Pharisees, Sadducees, all together. 71 people, and there are three people standing before them. The guy that was formerly crippled and lame, and then Peter and John. 71 people, imagine that, in a big semicircle around you, looking right at you. They've already thrown you in jail the night before, and here you are about to testify in front of these guys. Imagine the intimidation that you would feel in this situation. Peter and John are what? What's their profession? Fishermen. Simple fishermen. And here they are sitting before the Supreme Court of Israel. Now, I have a picture of what uh, these um, Pharisees or Sadducees may have looked like. And uh, these are guys that are like stately. They wear like all black and all white. And they've got beards so they can look really intimidating. Um, these guys have uh, just this, this, this um, presence about them that just makes you want to just kind of go crawl in a hole and not ever look at them ever again. Okay? Then you have someone like Peter and John. Look, they look more like this next slide. These guys are fishermen, okay? And, uh, and they've got a little boat there, as you can see. And, um, yes, that is a battery-powered lawn chair that goes through the, the water in the swamp. And uh, so I don't know if, if the profession of fishing was quite like this back then, but I would guess that there may be a tie in there. Um, this guy is from Alabama. Looks like he's a diehard Crimson Tide fan. Any Bama fans in here? No? You don't want to admit it right now, do you? Um, but you can imagine, like, the scene where these guys that are just simple fishermen are standing before this Supreme Court of Israel and the intimidation that they would feel in the place that they stand, having spent the night previously in jail. You can imagine also what must have gone through their minds knowing that the men they're staring at, all 71 of these people, were the same ones that put Jesus to death. They're the same ones who tortured Jesus, they beat him mercilessly, left him to die on a cross and bleed to death. These are the same guys. And so you can imagine that as they're standing there before these guys, they're thinking to themselves, this exact thing that happened to Christ can happen to us. These guys have that kind of power to kill us right here. And so um, these guys that are in the Supreme Court, these were like almost like mafia types in a sense. These guys were, they kept the high priest position in the family. They would actually, uh, you know, one guy would be a high priest. He would pass it on down to his son-in-law or his actual son. And uh, this guy, Annas, in, in this, this passage is not even the current high priest, but he still had power. Um, and this was a very much of a family thing. And so these guys asked Peter and John this question. They say, by what power do you heal this man? So imagine that. This guy's been crippled for 40 years. They heal him. And the only question they can ask is, okay, who gave you guys permission to do this? Instead of being in awe of the miracle, instead of being in awe of the fact that this guy was 40 years old, crippled for life, and now he's healed, the best question they have is, okay, who gave you permission to do such a thing? By what name did you do this? In verse 8 it says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where it talks about uh, 
then becoming filled with the Spirit so they can be His witnesses to the end of the earth. This is actually happening right here in the moment where it says He was filled with the Spirit because the Spirit is required to give someone boldness. It's the same Spirit of God that is in you and dwelling in you right now as we speak if you're a believer in Christ. It's the same Spirit that gives you boldness to speak to your friends about Christ. That same Spirit is here at work in this story with Peter as he speaks to these 71 men the Gospel. Peter basically says, we're on trial for healing someone. Really? Like, you're really going to put us on trial for healing a crippled guy? Is that why we're really here? And he says, if you're asking by what name we healed this guy, first of all, thank you for asking. Let me be clear. His name is Jesus. Remember the guy that you murdered? Jesus? They're putting Peter on trial, but Peter turns the tables and puts them on trial. Because they're the guilty ones. In verse 12, go back to verse 12 on the the slide Go back a couple slides. Go back to verse 12. I want you to see this. It says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What he's saying is that Jesus is the only name. Jesus is the only one that can heal this crippled guy in the same way that he's the only one that heals us spiritually. And so Peter stands in front of 71 people who have the power to kill him. And he speaks the gospel boldly. And you and I have trouble standing up for Christ with people that we know because we're worried that we won't be liked. So so Peter stands before 71 people who have the power to put him in prison and kill him. And he speaks the gospel boldly and powerfully. And you and I are afraid of losing a few friends if we stand up for Christ. We're afraid of offending some people. We're afraid of losing friends. And so Peter in this passage is saying, he's saying, let me be clear. Jesus is not just one name. He is the only name. Jesus is not just a name. He is the only name by which we are saved. I want to focus our our time this morning just on this one idea. Do you realize how unpopular in the culture that you and I live in it is to say that Jesus Christ is the only way? Do you realize how unpopular that idea is? If you turn on any news channel, if you turn on any, um, if you go to any university, if you go to your high school, if you surveyed your high school, I guarantee you that a large percentage of people would say, It's arrogant, it is bigoted, it is wrong for Christians to say that Jesus Christ is the only way. They would say that you're wrong to say that. That is is the view of most people in our culture today. Now, it's also popular to say that all religions lead to God. It's popular to say that a good God would allow multiple pathways to get to Him. It's also popular to say that a good, loving God would not send anyone to hell. And in this passage, we see that the truth is a loving God tells you the truth and he gives you a warning. That's what a loving God does. 
We cannot sit there and say that a loving God would just allow multiple ways to get to Him. We can't even say that a loving God would never send anyone to hell. We have to say that from this passage we get this idea that a loving God tells us the truth and gives us a warning. That's what a loving God does. And so Peter is proclaiming this truth before these men, the Supreme Court of Israel. But here's the reality. In our culture today, it's not just non-Christians that are saying there's multiple ways to God. Many Christians, so-called Christians, are saying there are multiple ways to God. Many so-called Christians are saying that a good God would never separate himself for eternity from people that he created. There are many Christians that say that today. And so what I want to do this morning is, is, is talk briefly about uh, a guy that I've... You may, you may or may not know who this guy is, um, but go ahead and put the next slide up. Actually, the, the first slide of that... Uh, do you guys know who this person is? Raise your hand if you do. Anybody? A few of you. Okay. Um, I feel the need to actually talk about this because... We've actually used some of his videos when I first became a high school pastor here at TBC. This guy's name is Rob Bell, and he puts out a lot of videos. If you go into, like, any Christian bookstore, you'll see his books, you'll see his videos. Um, His earlier stuff was not like it was wrong or or heresy. Um, It was okay. But he was kind of heading down some some weird paths with his his beliefs, okay? And so just recently came out with a book uh, called Love Wins. And the whole book is basically a book about how um, no one actually goes to hell for eternity, but everyone ends up saved in the end. He basically says in this book that people get second chances after death, and in the end, God's love wins everyone over. He says that hell is a temporary state after death, but again, that people are going to have multiple chances to, the, to respond to God's love after death, and that in the end, love wins. God's love wins. This guy says he is a Christian. I am not here to judge and condemn if he is or, or is not a Christian. But what I do know is, he is a false teacher. I do know that. And I still need to talk about this because we've actually, as a church, used some of his videos in the past... And if you were here when we did that, I want to personally apologize to you because I wasn't aware that he believed this stuff until recently. But it shows you how careful we have to be and what we expose ourselves to as far as doctrine and beliefs. And the role that I play in your lives is that of a shepherd and a protector of this body. And my job is to protect you from false teachers and to teach you the truth invite you to come to Christ, and anyone that detracts from that to protect you from that kind of teaching. So that's why I'm talking about this this morning. Because what his book says is in direct contrast to what Peter is saying in this passage. I've read the entire book. I did not purchase it. I borrowed it. And in this book, he, he basically explains away every verse about hell and Jesus being the only way. He explains it away. And so I think that there, there, there could be many people that could read this book and say, hey, you know what? The decision I make about Christ in this life doesn't really matter. So I'm going to live for now. I'm going to live for me now. There's going to be a chance in the end. 
There's going to be a chance after I die, a good guy's not going to send me to hell. A good, a good guy's not going to separate himself from me for eternity. And so basically what he does in the book is, is call everything that Jesus said in Scripture a lie. Or he has some way to explain it. And I want you guys to know this morning that there is no one in the Bible that talks about hell more than Jesus does. Jesus speaks more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. The New Testament or Old Testament. Now, I don't know where you guys stand this morning, like what what your idea is on the idea of of hell and, and Christ being the only way to salvation. I don't know where you stand this morning. We did a series last year on some of these ideas. I'm not going to unpack those ideas this morning on why there would be such a thing called hell or why God would um, send someone to hell. That's for a different talk. But what I do want you to understand is the scriptures are clear that Jesus Christ is the only way to God because he is God. There are not multiple pathways to God. Not Buddhism, not Hinduism, not New Age, not Mormonism. There, there is no other pathway to God except through Jesus Christ. And there is such a place that people will go to in the afterlife if they die without knowing Christ as Savior. And I don't understand fully what that looks like. I don't pretend to. But all I know is that God gives us a warning because that's what a loving God does. God gives us a warning in His Word. This is what is going to happen if you don't submit to me, obey me, want to follow me, get into a relationship with me. If you don't make me Lord of your life, this is what's going to happen. Now, it's not, it's not that God is just, just out to punish. He is, he is one that is full of justice. But it is a God who will not force himself on you in this life. And so if you choose to not submit yourself to him in this life, then after death, he says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what you've asked for. And that is separation from me for eternity. God is a good, loving God, but he's also a just God. He's a God that executes justice. And it's funny that most of us would criticize God and say things like, well, a good God would never do this, this, and this. But when it comes to an earthly judge, we would say that an earthly judge in this life is a judge who executes justice. But we would say that's actually a good aspect of that judge. But when it comes to God, we're afraid to say that a good God means that he's a just God. And there are things that we don't quite understand about all these tensions about hell and the afterlife and so on. We get all that. But all I want you to hear today is this. There is a God who has given us a warning in his scripture that if you do not enter into a relationship with him, you will spend eternity separated from him. That is the truth. Jesus Christ is the only way. And that is not arrogant for me to say. I did not make up that truth myself. That is in Scripture. And you've got to wrestle with the idea, do you believe Scripture, or do you believe opinions of people? Do you believe the Word of God that you hold in your hands, or do you just believe what you see on TV, the questions that your friends ask at school? Are you going to let those questions influence your view of Scripture 
Or are you going to let Scripture influence those questions? That is the question that you have to wrestle with today with Acts chapter 4, verse 12. People say things like Christians are arrogant for saying Christ is the only way. I would say this. It's arrogant to say that He's not the only way. How arrogant is it for us to say to God, Okay, God, you can't be the only way. That, that can't be the truth. When God has clearly said that, that is the truth. How arrogant for us as the people that He created question Him and say things like, You can't do that, God, and still be a good God. The whole premise of Rob Bell's book is based on the idea that a good God would never send anyone to hell. That's his launching point for the book. And I would say he is completely wrong. I will say that I don't quite understand how those tensions work together. I don't. But I believe what the Bible says. And I'm going to go with what the Bible says versus what my emotions may feel. That's just where I'm at. And so, I don't want to debate about hell this morning. I do want to make this personal. Because this is a really, really big deal. In youth group, as you guys know, we like to have a lot of fun here. We, um, we laugh, we joke, we have a good time. But the hard part about youth group is this. And this is my failure as your leader. That we often don't challenge you guys in a serious way to come to know Christ as your Savior. We oftentimes don't seriously tell you guys, hey, look, this is a big deal. But after all the fun and games are over, in the end, the most important question you have to answer is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to follow him or reject him? That's the question you have to answer. And so I think that I have not led you well in this area that I have not made it black and white for you many times. I've just kind of talked about a relationship with Christ and the good that comes from that, but I've neglected to tell you things about the judgment that might come from you not receiving Christ. What may happen to you, what will happen to you if you choose not to follow Christ in your life. Because let me be really clear. There are people in this room who, right now, you are not taking God seriously. You're not. And if you do not surrender your life to Christ and call on the only name, Jesus Christ, that can heal you spiritually and save you from your sin, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. Scripture is clear about that. Now you might say, okay, how can a a good God do that? I don't understand that, and I get the question. But a good God is a just God. God's justice and His goodness are intertwined together. A good God is a just God. And people say all the time that that they don't quite understand this idea, and I I feel it too, to an extent. But you've got to ask the question, are you going to trust Scripture over your emotions? That's the question you have to answer this morning. Will you trust Scripture over your questions and how you feel about things? Most Christians, me included, are worried more about offending people with the gospel. But when we don't take God's call seriously, 
to share the gospel, we offend God. We're more concerned about offending people than we are about offending God. And I want to be clear with you this morning that our God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of clarity, and He has made Himself known in His Son, Jesus Christ. And a good God is clear about who He is and how we come into a relationship with Him. Let's just pretend for a moment that the idea that many roads lead to God, let's pretend for a moment that that's actually true. Let's just pretend for a moment. If that were true, then the God that we serve is a very confusing God. Because why would a good God allow all of these conflicting, competing ideas about Him that that really can't coexist and all be true at the same time? Why would a good, loving God allow those things to coexist and not clear things up and not make Himself known in a clear, concise way? I would say that God would be a confusing, evil God. Not a good God. And so if God is a good God, which I believe that He is, that He makes Himself clearly known through His Son, Jesus Christ, and how we come into relationship with Him. And there are people I know in this room right now that are playing games with God. You really are. You're playing games with Him. You, you don't take Him seriously. You might say you believe in Him, but you don't take his warning seriously. You think that in the end, it's, it's all going to be okay. You'll, you'll live for yourself now, and God will not have much to say about that in the end. There are people in this room right now that I know are not taking God seriously at all. Some might pretend to be Christians. Some might not pretend at all, but they might just be living life and not really caring what happens. But I would tell you, if you do not take this warning seriously, you will spend forever eternally separated from God as a result of that. And I want to challenge you this morning that if you feel just convicted by what I'm saying, you can stop today. You can turn to Christ today. You can repent from your sin, turn towards Christ, place your faith in Him, His finished work on the cross that saves you and you can stop living that way today that decision can be made today at the end of this morning I want to, I want to challenge you guys I want to tell you guys how you can actually come to know Christ in just a moment but I do want to talk about a couple things with this passage briefly we learned two main things from this passage and it's this the first one is God is patient with lost sinners Now, what I just said may conflict what I'm saying now, but hear me out on this. God is patient with lost sinners. These religious leaders in the story rejected John the Baptist. They rejected Jesus. They killed Jesus. But he resurrects. His followers do miracles. And they still don't believe in him. The religious leaders of Israel, they see all of this stuff. John the Baptist, Jesus. They killed Jesus. He resurrects. His followers do miracles, and they still don't believe in Him. God would be fully justified just to strike them all dead right there on the spot. But the reason why He does not is because He's patient with lost sinners. But here's my warning to you in that. is Do not take advantage of His patience. Do not be someone who takes advantage of His grace because 
you do not know how long you have. You do not know how long you have on this earth. And if you die without knowing Christ, you'll be separated forever. And I'm serious about this. That, that some of you right now, you, you do not take God seriously. You think this is a big joke. You don't heed his warning and take it seriously. And so, the last thing I'd want as a youth pastor is to have people come and hear this every week. Hear the word taught. Hear God's word preached. And walk away and say, you know what? Forget that. I have no need for that. And, and walk away. And walk away from God. And spend eternity separated from God. As your pastor, I, I'm pleading with you, do not be one of those people who makes no decision or makes the wrong decision. Because both of those are the wrong decision. Do not take advantage of His grace. Do not take advantage of his patience. Because you do not know how long he will be patient with you. And so this morning what I want to do is just, uh, you guys have several questions you you can answer at your tables in just a moment. But after you answer your questions, um, I want to invite you, if you're someone this morning that's sitting here and you're sitting there going, I've never experienced a time in my life where I've placed my faith in Christ. And his finished work on the cross. I have never, to my knowledge, come into a relationship with him. And I want to talk with someone about how how I actually do that in my life. I want to ask ask you guys as leaders, how do I become a Christian? Because what happens so much here, um, where you and I live in the Bible Belt, is that many of you guys just kind of fall into church. Just by default. Many of you guys just kind of fall into place. Your parents go here. Your friends go here. So you show up on Sunday morning, you kind of, you know, do this whole Christian thing. But if you've never come to a place in your life where you can say, this was the time where I decided to follow Christ. This was the time where I decided to surrender my life to Christ. This was the time where I decided to turn from my sin and repent from it and turn towards Christ. If you cannot identify a time in your life like that, then I'm not sure you can call yourself a believer. I'm not sure of that. And so why delay that any further? Why doubt any, any longer? You can turn to Christ today and make sure of that today. And so what I want to challenge you to do is this morning, when you're finished with your discussion at your tables, pursue your table discussion leader. Come and talk to me. If you're someone who does not know where you stand with Christ today, make that decision today. Do not wait any longer. You do not know how long you have on this earth to make that decision. You don't know. And so with that said, uh, go and discuss questions, your last four questions, and we'll be here with you if you want to talk afterwards.